0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your co-host, Amanda Joyce Hall. Today, in my interview with Dr. Kim Gallen, we discuss her new book entitled Pleasure in the News, African-American Readership and Sexuality in the Black Press. The title is currently out with the University of Illinois Press as a part of the New Black Studies series. In Pleasure in the News, Gallen shows how Black newspaper editors and journalists fostered Black sexual publics during the 1920s and 1930s, the golden age of the Black press. Editors did this by strategically electing to publish stories about marital scandals, divorces, homosexuality, and gender nonconformity, imagining that this coverage was a source of pleasure and debate for Black readers. Gallen argues that this editorial practice within the Black press exposed class, gender, and sexuality divisions between different groups of African Americans. At the same time, this coverage revealed the tenuous position of lesbians, gay men, and female impersonators in a public sphere that sometimes silenced and marginalized their voices. Rather than fostering absolute racial solidarity, which Gallant takes as the Black press's starting point, the press showed the diversity of Black people and created a discursive space in which sexual knowledge was produced, debated, and enjoyed. And now for my interview with Dr. Kim Gallen, who is an associate professor of history at Purdue University. Dr. Gallen is also a digital humanist whose work has both inspired and advanced projects in the field of the Black digital humanities. We plan to discuss this and more in our interview. Hi, Dr.
1: Gallen. Welcome to the show. Hi, Amanda. Thank you for having me today. It's it's a pleasure to be here to talk to you about my book and my work in the digital humanities.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for being with us. Can you tell us, um, to begin the interview, just a little bit more about yourself and your journey to the study of history? Um, As you mentioned, uh, your work in the digital humanities um, has been really leading in the field. Can you please tell us about how your research interests developed alongside the DH projects that you are also leading?
1: Yeah, sure. I would love to. I have a a bit of an interesting path into being a historian and and maybe, you know, others have uh, similar paths, but I know that mine wasn't direct from uh, undergraduate. I was first a librarian for uh, several years at the University of Penn. Um, I was a research librarian and bibliographer working in uh, African-American studies and You know, I spent a lot of time behind the reference desk, really envious of all the PhD candidates that would come in with these great, exciting research projects. And so I literally jumped over the desk and decided to become a graduate student. And the person that really aspired me to become a historian is uh, Barbara Diane uh, Savage, who is still a professor at the University of Penn. Um, I took a class with her and it was, you know, it was just written in the stars that I will be a historian. And, and, and obviously there's a lot of connection between being a historian and being a research librarian. They're both very research intensive, um, professions and really engage in, and scholarly discovery, uh, discovery. And, um, but, you know, being a, a researcher and a, a scholar, uh, there's much more, uh, emphasis on publication and that's certainly what I, what I wanted. And, um, you know, the, the the idea of sexuality, I always knew I wanted to write about sexuality from the very beginning. I was always and and continue to be very interested in what people think about uh, sexuality, their bodies, their ideas, uh, what gives them pleasure sexually. Um, because of the ways that Black Americans' uh, ideas around sexual- sexuality and their bodies have often been pathologized and objectified and and viewed as hypersexual, I was really invested in thinking about sexuality in a way that um, hadn't been told. So I came to you know thinking about the history of sexuality, really wanting to write a book about the history of sexuality in, in slavery. And that was I was, I was determined I was going to write that book. Um, but I had graduate advisors and probably with for good reason advised me that that would be a difficult. To do. You know, now here we are with really interesting books by Sawandi Mustakim and Dinah Berry, Leslie Harris, even Thomas Foster has a new book out, a recent book out on, on Black men and sexuality and slavery. Um, and so it's certainly being done now. But at that time, you know, my, my advisors really recognized that there was a finite amount of time and, you know, really trying to uncover the type of ways that I want to talk about sexuality would be difficult. It still remains very difficult for scholars. And what I mean by that, I'm I'm really invested in talking about sexuality in ways that gets beyond uh the sort of uh discussions around uh, sexual assault, uh, lynching. You know, I really want to think about the ways that black people saw themselves as sexual beings. Um both, but particularly outside of the white gauge, right? To really thinking about intra-racial conversations about sexuality, and the black press was a natural forum for that. It really was because um, there, in the black press, which is largely catered and almost exclusively catered to black people, um, if you're care- if you're looking carefully, you see a lively discussion. Uh, fraught with all sorts of issues happening between Black people around what it means to be sexual, what it means to be Black in a particular moment. And so um, ironically, as it might seem, uh, it was probably the best thing that my uh, advisors told me to sort of think about sexuality in much more broader, more expansive ways that got me outside of sort of the narrow confines of enslavement. Um, so for that, I'm really deeply grateful. And just to talk a little bit about the digital humanities, that certainly came out of being a librarian. Um, I really uh, started in the digital humanities very early on when it was still sort of in the making. So I'm not you know, old enough to be one of those scholars that Uh, was able to benefit from the innovation of DH, but certainly was not formally trained. But because I was a librarian, because I was engaged in technology, I was working on HTML and building websites uh, really early on and building resources, it really seemed natural to use digital technologies to create a resource around the Black press and a community around the Black press. And that's where the Black Press Research Collective comes out of. So, you know, these... These connections between research, technology, history, they really have aligned really well so that I can bring those things together now in the work that I do.
0: Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Um, You've spoken a little bit to it uh, just now, um, but um, I would like to know more specifically about how you came to write Pleasure in the News. And maybe if you remember any of the first newspaper stories that you encountered where you remember thinking, oh... I got to do something with this um, and inspired you to rethink the existing historiography on the Black press or develop some of the earliest ideas for the text that um, we have before us today?
1: Yeah, I love this question because it's making me go back in time. Um, (laughs) A couple of stories to share, but I'll start off with what really drew me to the Black press. And I I mentioned earlier, being able to see and um, sort of bear witness to conversations about sexuality between Black people. And so, you know, I was, you know, in my 20s and I was bemoaning the, what I saw at the time, and, you know, it's arguable, but what I saw at the time is some of the the conversations between Black men and Black women around sexuality and dating and finding a partner, Right. And so, you know, I was looking at things and, you know, there was this romanticization of, oh, things aren't like the way they used to be. You know, black men used to be like this and black women used to be like this and we used to be a tighter community. And you know, just a real sort of nostalgia for a past that I don't think actually ever really existed in some sense. And what I mean by that is. When I started looking at the Black press, one of the, some of the first sort of stories and coverage that jumped out at me was the tension between Black men and Black women, right? And the discussions that would get played out. In the same way you see happening, not the same way, but in a similar way that you see happening on Twitter, right? These discussions about sexuality and gender that happen in social media. You see those same sort of or similar types of discussions happening out and black newspapers, right? Oh, and, and the Black press creating the forum for those types of discussions. And so that's what drew me because I was like, you know, we have this idea that what we're experiencing now, both about sexuality and gender in a Black community is new. And it certainly are new things and, and things that um, people, you know, 50, 70, 100 years ago didn't necessarily have to deal with. But the tensions and the negotiations and the ways that, Black people are trying to sort of stake out these grounds of what it means to be a, a racial person, a gender person, a sexual person, right, and negotiate those identities at once. Those tensions and those dilemmas, I would argue uh, mirror what we experience at a mirror, um, what people historically experienced, and there wasn't a social media, there wasn't technology, and so the black press, in terms of a, a forum and a sphere of life outside of the, you know, the sort of institutional homes, becomes a place for those types of discussions uh, to happen. Um, and so, and I, I like lascivious stuff, right? <laughs> I really do. I, um, I, I like to look. And see how people are experiencing sexuality, Um, and again, the black press becomes became a way to do that. So, um, I I know we're gonna probably get to this, but my um my research on black the black press starts on microfilm. You know, that's how yeah, that's how old I am, frankly, and I'm okay with that because I'm I'm here healthy and vibrant and and have more years ahead of me, hopefully. But I started, you know, again, remember I was a librarian. I started on microfilms, and I can say this now because I have tenure and I'm at another institution, but I I was a librarian at Penn, and I would sneak off at times when I was supposed to be working, and I'd be over on the microfilm machine, particularly on the weekends. So if you are still at the University of Penn Van Pelt Library, you know, I'm sort of outing myself about what I would do. So, you know, I would do the reference desk for about eight hours on the weekend. You know, it's much slower than the weekend. And I would have a student worker, you know, who would be supporting me. And I would go around the corner, crank up the microfilm machine, um, and start doing some of this research. Um, Because, uh, you know, a uh, until I became a full-time um, graduate student. I was still working as a librarian, so I was doing part-time research. But it was a it was a slog going through issue of the paper. There was no search words that I could use. There was no, no keying in anything. It was like issue by issue. But guess what? I found much more than I ever could have found in an electronic database by going through that microfilm um, uh, issue by issue. I found some of the most sort of... Um, you know, arcane, obscure stuff that's just not going to uh, be retrievable. Do OCR and digitization, and so it it really made me um, really refine and develop research skills in a way that um, isn't always available to people who have you know digital digital resources. And so, you know, it, it was it was a, a very interesting time and. I'll just add this. I um I literally went out and bought a microfilm microfilm machine off of eBay again I'm dating myself. Um, wow. <laughs> and so again because I was a librarian I could you know take microfilm home and I know ILL lets people borrow microfilm now but back then they really didn't but I would I would take the microfilm from, you know, Penn Library, and I would be home in the evenings, again, going issue by issue, page by page, looking for representations of a sexuality. Um, And so, um, yeah, it was an interesting time. I, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I'm sort of romanticizing that time. I'm not saying that I want to do microfilm research again, but I will say that there is a value of being able to, to do that type of work in that, that fashion because of uh, the detail, um, the level of detail that's required and the level of attention that it requires. I, I don't near have the attention span that I used to, right? Because there's a certain type of physical and mental labor that it takes to sit at a micro, microfilm machine for hours. Um, yes. And I've, kind of,
0: I've kind of lost that. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think that it's very clear that uh, the subject was irresistible. <laughs> if you were right. uh, doing the work at home, you know, uh, dipping off to the library yes. uh, during, <laughs> during work <laughs> to explore <laughs> um, representations of sexuality in the Black press. Um, one more, yes, yeah, so you definitely touched on this. Um, one more aspect of kind of you know, uncovering your experience doing the research for Pleasure in the News that I wanted to know about um, was uh, how you dealt with the volume of it all. So I'm sure that to achieve the broad scope that this manuscript has, you had to read across, you know, at least five major presses over more than two decades. Um, And so I imagine that, you know, you had so many thousands and thousands of articles. Um, How did you make choices of... um, Sort of what you were what you were going to include, uh, what you weren't going to include. Did you have a system to manage kind of all the, all the, uh, the all the relevant newspaper articles that you came across that touched on this subject?
1: Yeah. Again, because of where I started, and there, and. and Um, Due to, you know, family obligations, there was a a certain bit of a lag between, you know, both in getting the dissertation and then turning the dissertation in the book. And and that's okay. Those things are going to happen. But when I first started, I was literally printing out the articles um, because, again, I was at a, a point in technology where, you know, scanning to a a drive wasn't really an option. And so I literally had folders and folders and I had broad topical areas that I was looking for. Again, I was really invested in telling a story about sexuality that, you know, transcended the, the oppressive violent relationship that sexuality has always had um, in the context of whiteness. But it literally was, uh, you know, picking these five papers, and I'll I'll be very honest and open, you know, I picked five papers, um, the the big three, the Defender, the Courier, and the Afro-American because of their national scope, and they were just so powerful papers and widely circulated that it made sense. The Philadelphia and New York one. I was looking more for a city level, but a lot of it was also availability. Again, this is pre progress historical, you know, newspapers where you know you had um, more newspapers um, that are now digitized and available. So some of the the choices I made was about availability. And one thing, if I could write this book over again, and I know you're not you not asking that or ask about, you know, um, me rethinking research decisions. I certainly have thought about that. And if I were writing this book today and researching this book today, I'd be much more attuned to different editions, right? Um, and I never really accounted for different editions. And when you think about a paper like um, any one of these papers, but I'll pick the Baltimore Afro-American, which is my favorite paper because of its sex, the coverage of sexuality. But they had different editions. And depending on the edition that you got, the paper might have much more sexual coverage. So the local Baltimore edition rather than the national had much more uh, ex- explicit and more specific coverage of sexuality than the national, right? And so you have these you know, local and national audiences that I, I certainly wish I would have done more with thinking about how the, um, the papers are negotiating these different audiences and how these editions take on their different um, imagined audiences. So that's one choice I think I would have done. I would have done things differently and delved more into that. And then another area that I would have delved more into is really – um, being clear about uh, black uh, immigrant communities, right, and um, also this idea of a black press that doesn't sort of um, look like a black American press, like so a black immigrant press, um, you know, more radical black presses, right, more local black presses. I'm not sure I would have done the level of research. I I think that would have been outside of what was possible but be able to show an engagement or a connection between sort of these major black newspapers and much smaller news organs um, and do a little bit more comparative analysis. But I guess like a lot of authors, you know, you, you live with the book that you publish and hopefully it, it opens up questions and ideas and avenues for new research for people who want to go on or even, um, you know, challenge what you've presented. And I'm, you know, I'm totally okay with that. Um, but yeah, those were some of the, I think the lessons learned and um, just, you know, just strategies of, uh, you know, trying to organize, I you say, a, a broad set of a uh, uh, newspaper coverage across, you know, you know, a couple of decades.
0: Absolutely. And um, I do think that this book has opened up, um, yes, both new methods and, and new ways for thinking about this period. I mentioned to you that it's, after reading this book, I begin to see the way that I read the Black Press in South Africa differently now. So, yeah. um but let's jump into our discussion of the book. Perhaps you could begin by giving us a broad snapshot, a broad snapshot of the Black Press during the interwar period. Who were the household publishers, the owners, the staff, and the readership? And why was this period a particularly important one for the Black Press?
1: Yeah, it's a great question um, as a way to sort of jump into the, the heart of the book and its major arguments. Um, I'm not the only one. I'm certainly not the first one to think about the black press as, uh, as a golden age during this period. And that's problematic and a little bit. Um, well, it's problematic to always sort of think of something as a golden age. I think, again, there's a sort of constructed nostalgia around certain things when you call them golden age. But I will say though that the black press during this period was probably at its peak um, from approximately, you know, 1920 to 19, you know, 45, 46. Maybe we can go in a little bit into the civil rights movement. Um, you know, many scholars, and I include myself in this, you know, look at the decline of the black press after the civil rights movement and desegregation and, um, you know, recognize there was a shift, but that interwar period, uh, I love, you know, I was thinking this yesterday. I was uh, looking for something historically about Black people. I was actually doing some research on, on vaccine hesitancy, and I'll I'll talk a little bit about where my work is going in terms of, you know, the Black press today. I was like, well, you know, how did Black people deal with um, vaccines historically? And of course, I, Jump on, and I'm going right to the black press, right? Because I mean, I, I always say, if you're doing black history, you're probably you're doing any type of history. If you're not hitting newspapers first, you're not doing history right. And so, when I think about the black press during this time period, it's it's you know at its one of its peaks. It's fearless. It's innovative because they are trying to reach multiple audiences. Uh, both working-class Black Americans and middle-class and elite uh, Black Americans. They literally are, you know, in the papers I did with sort of the paper of record, but also sort of the tabloid of record at the same time. Um, innovative because they are uh, trying to uh, cover things that the major presses are, uh, and that's uh, white press, but also uh, coming off original content that's going to appeal specifically to their readers. And then um, fiercely, you know, advocating for the race, um, protesting systemic racism and oppression, right? Uplifting the race. I mean, it literally, these papers are everything to everyone. And because of that, you know, there, it, when you sit down and you read the papers, and after a while, if you read them long enough, you sort of get a sense of their organization, it appears a little schizophrenic. Like, why is, uh, you know, something about, like, cooking on the cover and, you know, something about uh, World War II is buried in, you know, page 42? You know, so there's a, there's a level of, you know, schizophrenia or it appears there's so much there and they're trying to reach so much... Different audiences, um, you know. But it's you know the Robert S. Abbott, obviously of the Chicago Defender, and Carl Murphy, um, Rhodes for uh, the Tribune, and um, um, for the Courier uh, Van. You know, these are the major publishers, and they come to these papers. You know, the Murphys are family owned. Um, the Rhodes, uh, during this time frame, is also sort of family owned through through marriage. Um, But these other papers, Robert S. Abbott obviously starts these papers. These papers start out like, I guess, most Black papers and most Black media outlets just through the sheer desire to have a voice, to be a voice for Black people, to create a a platform for protest and advocacy. But again, and this is where I feel like my book really does make a useful intervention. It's not just about uplift and advocacy. Um, It's also about Black joy and Black pleasure, right? Uh, Andre Black, I think, um, and his work in distributed Blackness and a variety of other people that talked about the importance of uh, pleasure and joy, the politicalization of it, right? That, um, you know, Black people do not exist uh, solely Uh, as a lens into uh, racism, that their lives um, exceed that, even as they include it. And so these papers, even as, you know, um, many of these papers and the editors would, you know, claim that they are there solely for the purpose of uplifting the race. They're there for money, right? So let's say there's profit to be made. They're there to create a, a platform of entertainment. They're there to critique they're there for a lot of reasons. And I think the historiography, um, to its credit, has created um, a, a story and a narrative that's absolutely essential to understanding the Black press. It's only part of the story. And you only get part of the story if you fail to think about the really uh, important role of sensationalism, both as a way to entice people to read papers, but also as a way to raise awareness about uh Unjust, um, unjust, uh, you know, injustice, and uh, ways to create opportunities for social justice. So, you know, I I make the argument that sensationalism has an incredible, important value, and while it's marginalized as being, um, you know, poor journalism or journalism that doesn't have the merit of hard journalism or serious journalism, I would say it's just as important, and in some ways, even more important in engaging people uh, across a spectrum of different identities.
0: Absolutely. There's so much more uh, kind of uh, is what I, is what I learned reading this book Um, that yes, beyond the stories on politics and the stories on movement building, which I think we're, we're just drawn to, um, or we're trained to be drawn to um, there's so much more to examine and to look at within the, within the black press um, that reflects black life at the time. Um, so one of the um, yeah so one of the uh, themes that you explore is how the black press exposed fault lines and contradictions in a societal framework that typically associated immorality with poverty by making the private sexual lives of um, the black middle class available for public pr- critique. Can you tell us more about how the black press's coverage of divorce and sex scandal? among the black elite and the black middle class reinforced or challenged existing class relations within black communities.
1: Yeah, sure. It's probably one of my favorite things to write about, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, and I that, there's a certain moralizing and I and I certainly am part of it, you know. I've had my my definitely my views on uh, you know, certain music that has come out recently That's for another podcast. So I certainly my uh, moralizing, especially as I've gotten older and hand-wringing about representations of sexuality in popular culture, right? So I'm just as guilty. But there is a certain moralizing. Um, and I, I don't, let me just back up. I don't think it's always about class, right? I think, you know, depending on where you are in life, uh, this sort of anxiety about sexuality um, reaches again across different types of identities, but what I do know about the early 20th century, um, as today, there's a certain uh, uh, you know pathologization of um, poor and working class sexuality as being a problem, right? As being the sort of generator of uh, illegitimate children, single parent homes uh sexual behavior that doesn't sort of fit a certain narrative, you know, sexual behavior that's outside of marriage, sexual behavior that's outside of heteronormative relationships. And so, you know, you have the Chicago school of so- sociology, sociology, um and Fraser, E. Franklin Fraser, and a whole bunch of uh, work that's coming out that you know one can argue and many people located with W. E. B. Du Bois in the Philadelphia Negro that is looking and discussing the 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 sexual behaviors behaviors of these migrants particularly right these people that are moving from the south to the north and wondering how to uh you know control that behavior to surveil it to um create um, behavior or to try to, um, sort of inculcate these values, right? These moral values that respectable people have. And some of that, you know, the social reformers and some of the discussions, uh, you know, quite frankly, aren't always about moralizing. Some of it is about public health, right? and sexually transmitted infections and, you know, those types of things. So I don't want to, you know, I always think sometimes this notion of respectability politics gets a little bit of a bad rap because of the way that um, it's seen as always about trying to control people um, of different class, um, with different classes. But the Black press allows uh, that discourse to be turned on its head because, you know, you're not for coverage for newspapers, if you're trying to sell newspapers, no one cares what the washerwoman is doing down the street, who she has over her house. Right? That's not going to sell papers. But what will sell papers is if you are the minister of a prominent mainline black church and you are having sex with your someone in your congregation and your first lady of the church finds out about it and it's getting played out, then that's going to sell papers, right? That's what you want on the, the cover of your papers because- Everybody wants to know who is engaged in this sexual relationship with this minister or a prominent, you know, professor or lawyer, and so you know this allows, I would argue, this narrative about sexual pathology to be turned on its head because now it's the middle class and elite black people that are um, being um, exposed. And ministers, you see it in the paper; they're they're angry, like the you know they don't want these stories being written about them. And they are, you know, there's this interesting relationship between the Black church and the Black press, like these two autonomous institutions. And we read about them struggling to sort of be the influencer, right? The Black press sort of seeing themselves as the public opinion maker, but the Black church also believe that they are also just as much um, in control and influencing people's uh, opinions and ideas about life through religion, right? And both very male-led, you know, institutions, obviously. And so there's a way that women's sexuality, particularly, bec- um, is in play for both of these uh, institutions. And so the black press, in order, in some ways, I would say, is also using this coverage to uh, take down, if you will the the influence and the power of the black the black church right to undermine its authority uh, undermine its certainly its religious and moral authority and um, so I think this coverage works on a variety of ways that it's entertaining um, just as we're entertained by innuendo and gossip and you know I'm thinking about you know Janet Pinkett and Will Smith's little Sort of entanglements a few months ago, right? Like you would that get played out in the black press in a way that you know it gets played out on social media, but it doesn't get played out in like contemporary black papers in the same way because you know not as many people are reading them. And so, um, and I would argue that that just as the the interest in Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith uh, life is about them, it's also about a whole set of other things and us as as people, right? Like I saw so many people, both historically with readers reading about these uh, situations as today, you know, using it to think about their own choices and their own sexual behavior and relationships. So these this coverage is About the people, but it's always about a much larger story, whether it's these institutional relationships or one's own lived relationship with sexuality, these stories and this coverage, um, you know, is always symbolic of, of something much deeper
0: right absolutely and i thought the chapter that we're talking about is uh called divorce trials and sex scandals and and this chapter was just really gratifying to read actually um because it yeah because it exposed uh black elites as fallible in ways that uh they didn't
1: want anyone to know Right. Um, well i'll I'll just if i could just add mm -hmm, absolutely Mm -hmm. there's a a prominent lawyer uh, who's involved in civil rights charles Hamilton houston who I talk about in the book, who's defending uh, a, a doctor that's accused of sexually assaulting a, a young woman, uh, and you know, you think about how for many years these stories are hidden, um, but this is a very, very prominent uh, case that gets um, the the trial and the accusations. He's you know also accused of, of performing an abortion um, on this young woman, and. Um, you know the black press becomes a way to um becomes a way to you know obviously reveal this but unlike today that that individual who's done amazing things for black communities didn't lose any stature right there is still very much a patriarchal male dominated system that um allows black men who are doing either you know having these sexual affairs or involved in these sort of uh, scandals that are actually, uh, in this particular case, hurt a young woman um, that allows them to maintain their reputation and their stature in a way that I think would be questionable today. I mean, we've seen it, right?
0: Right, right, right. That's a good point. Um, with within this kind of discussion of of class and gender, um, I wanted to just ask very briefly if you could kind of explain what the what role the great migration has in changing uh, the the readership yes. of the black press
1: yeah definitely uh, the great migration is you know and we we always come back to it because it is this uh huge huge event right with all these black Americans moving from the south to the north largely for um to get away you know there's a push and pull historically and historiographically we talk about the push and pull, whether, you know, Black Americans are being pushed because of segregation and uh, oppression in the South and lack of, of you know, real work opportunities, um, or are they being, you know, pulled for uh, the labor uh, that World War One brings them, and a, a more flexible, albeit, you know, racist, still racist, flexible uh, racial system, a more flexible racial system. And um, whether you are on one side or the other, or you're somewhere in the middle, um, the fact of the matter is that you have large, large numbers of Black Americans moving into northern cities or southern cities that are more north of where they are. And these Black Americans are literate in ways that they weren't historically. They have discretionary, Income in ways they didn't have historically, and the black press recognizes that. Black businesses recognize that, and you are now catering to a new group of consumers or a new a group of readers. And these readers are invested in not just seeing representations of uh, you know um, of uplift and uh, you know racial advocacy. They are uh invest in seeing representations of themselves and representations of things that interest them. Uh I'll give you a good example um and uh, this is where my research is taking me now is a lot of the short stories, fictional stories that were in black papers um for during this time period deal with the notion of migration. There's a lot of stories about the, the young woman coming to the city and then being swept off her feet by this uh, this very sharp player, who then leads her down to this path of morale immorality, and then she either finds her way back to the countryside or finds her way through the love and the sort of graces of a, of a good man. But the notion is is that they uh, readers, um, writers, and the editors recognize that there's this new readership that would want to see coverage and themes that would engage their own experiences in some shape, form, or fashion. And at the same time, the Black press is also creating these moralizing stories, right? And these stories that control women's sexuality and say that if you had these sexual relationships outside of marriage, you are a bad woman, this is what's going to happen to you. So in this context of engagement and speaking to certain uh, imagined readers' interests, there's also a way to again to try to inculcate these values of respectability that's going to create uh, a race of people that could then warrant and demand full citizenship, right? This idea that one sexuality and one sexual behavior um, makes you less uh, or merits creates opportunity or the situation where you merit a less uh, access to citizenship, less access to jobs, just lack less access to humanity. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's always sort of in play as, as well. Right.
0: Well, let's stay on that theme and perhaps talk about representations of Black women in the press during the interwar period. You describe numerous categories of, of Black women's representations from the chorus girl to the bathing beauty, to the predatory lesbian. Um, and you call the latter two, quote, the recalcitrant offspring of dissemblance, end quote. Can you tell us more about this and how the Black press transformed Victorian notions of women's public-facing sexuality and respectability?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I start off like many people do, uh, you know, just, you know, honoring um, Darlene Clark Hines' um, culture of dissemblance, Right. Yes, uh, this yes. Idea and theory that black women uh, dissembled or hid their sexuality from view for fear of uh, being stigmatized by it, by fear of uh, being sexualized, and just literally by fear of being sexually assaulted. Right, coming out of that mm-hmm. that that history, those very real experiences. Um, and that culture of dissemblance, you know, depending again on who and how people understand it, certainly can be liberatory in the sense that one is then sees, is, views oneself and hopefully is viewed as outside of their sexuality. But at the same time, it can be inhibiting and doesn't allow someone to enjoy and engage and practice a sexuality, right? And right. so I think when I see the Black press and I see the representations, I see, uh, oh, and, and let me just go back and say the culture of the Simons is often located as a, a, a black middle class elite woman sort of uh, strategy to, mm-hmm. again, uh, you know, f- uh, to resist or fight off the ways that black women have been uh, sexualized and oppressed through gender and their sexuality. And there's always this dichotomy with the working class blues woman, right? Who is just out there and is um, <laughs> much more open about her sexuality that like gets sort of located as working class women's sexuality. And that's always problematic. You know, young middle-class black women are having sex and they mm-hmm. are engaged in sexual ideas and sexual feelings. And so there's, you know, there's certainly some, where in the middle of these ideas of respectability and sort of um, you know immorality or working class lasciviousness, and mm-hmm. one of the categories that I I see uh, speaking to that or representations is the bathing beauty, where you know black women, middle class women, college educated women are displayed in um, you know bathing beauty uh, contests and attire on beaches. And they're wearing very similar uh, apparel to the chorus girl who is seen as much more, her sexuality Mm -hmm. is more tenuous. But they're wearing the exact same thing. And, you know, we're talking about the 1920s and 30s where, you know, wearing a a bathing suit is a new thing and showing one's body is, you know, relatively new compared to more Victorian, you know, settings and, and periods. And so, but these women are not being, you know, accused of being immoral, right? There's a certain respectability that they're getting because often they're described as, you know, the college girl who's home from college or Mrs. Such and Such, who's, you know, a young, uh, you know, newly newlywed and her husband on the beach, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a way that these, the bathing beauty is able to straddle this sort of uh, a sphere or a dichotomy of immorality and morality uh, through the sort of representations and the um, sort of positive coverage in the Black press. And I think, you know, women who are outside of that, whether the chorus girls or what I call the predatory lesbians, which there's not a lot of coverage of, 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 of Black women who uh, identify as women who uh, are sexually attracted to other women or engaged in sexual relationships or intimate sexual intimate relationships in the Black press. But when there are, they are viewed as predatory and almost as monsters. And Mm -hmm. what I say is that these predatory sort of lesbian characters um, are sort of propping up in some sense uh, the coverage of these bathing beauties, right? Because Mm -hmm. they are the sort of boogie persons in Mm -hmm. the closet, right? They are what you don't want your daughter to sort of be. And so these bathing beauties, you know, again, juxtaposed to these predatory lesbians can maintain a certain level of morality where the predatory lesbian, um, is the perverse abnormal sexuality that, um, if your young daughter or young, you know, um, young woman doesn't uh, sort of adhere to these heteronormative ideas of what sexuality is, she runs the risk of then um, being one of these predatory lesbians. Um, And I just think that the absence of women uh, who, again, identified either clearly or subtly or through representation... Uh, as women who loved other women and was and sexually desired other women, the sheer lack of them to me, mm-hmm. that silence speaks volumes of how dangerous and how hidden that sexuality needed to be. Because for right. the sexuality of Black women, I you know I had a scholar um, uh, Nicole um, uh, Myers Turner who we would always laugh about women Black women's sexuality, and we would always say that. Um, it's always sort of controlled and surveilled and even self-controlled for the good of the race. Like Black women's Mm -hmm. sexuality can -hmm. can never really just sort of exist independent. It's always got to be representative of the race in a way that our Black male counterparts doesn't have to be. And Mm -hmm. so for the good of the race, let's silence the representations of Black women who love other Black women, because that is so beyond the pale of what uh, a black respectability in via sexuality looks like that it can't even be disclosed, and if it's disclosed, it's got to be the most sort of perverse, monstrous form of sexuality mm-hmm. to to warn other black women from it. Right. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, I see that kind of yeah that dichotomy emerging in this chapter uh, between the bathing beauty and the predatory lesbian, which I like how you're reading kind of the silence um, as it being just a precarious, um, a precarious situation for women who love other women. Um, I would like to move next to the Black and Tans, um, the drag balls and interracial romance that is reported in the Black press. How did they report on these events and how were these stories received by Black readership?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um. International sexuality in the black press is another interesting avenue, and depending on who you ask, and I, I would say it's split down the middle, with some seeing, you know, the notion of black and tans, these nightclubs where black men, or black, I shouldn't say black men, black people, Black women, and I think that was a Freudian slip, so we'll just like (laughs) move past that. But um, where black (laughs) people and white people could come together and have fun and engage in, you know, recreation, and you know, sometimes it's spilled over into sexual relationships. Sometimes it's you know, white people coming from other areas of the city. To indulge in their the wildest sort of fantasies of the black exotic, right? Um, again, we uh-huh. see certain ways that that manifests itself in popular culture today. But the coverage of it in the black press was sort of like, um, you know, it was it was two sides. And the, what I think is interesting about that is that the interracial sexuality becomes a way for the Black press to really engage their readers. They always have, not always, but a lot of these papers that I study had these open questions that they would ask their readers. What do you think about interracial relationships? Are they good? Are they bad? And you get letters and lots of letters from readers weighing in on this issue because it's a big issue. And you have readers who are, it is, um, it is, is it actually is uh, you know uh, degrading right for black people to have relationships even to consensual white people because the way white people view black people there are black people who really are are invested in a certain purity of black mm-hmm. people that you know they're making a case that it's a degradation for for the black race to be engaged with um, with uh, white uh, people. And you know you do see a flip sort of discourse, and I shouldn't say a flip discourse, but you see a discourse where black men are particularly anxious about black women having sexual relationships with white men, a because of the historical uh uh legacy of rape and sexual assault um, that many black men I think personally sort of live through, whether their wife or a daughter or sister was a domestic in a home, or hearing stories about sexual assault mm-hmm. uh, through, you know, the history of enslavement, but also having a lot of anxiety about white men that would, um, you know, come into black communities and just, you know, be there just to, uh, you know, exchange sex for, for, you know, mm-hmm. monetary goods or even, you know, engage in these relationships. And being really, really hard on Black women who were in consensual relationships with white men who were, um, you know, perhaps interested in that, you know, really sort of um, disparaging in comments. And on the other side, you have Black people who are, sees racial justice and um, racial, the lifting of racial prejudice as sexual interracial relationships being a path to that, that, that you know, if, we can be in these sexual relationships uh, and show white people that we are human and that we are um, just as good as they are, that perhaps this is, could be an opening where the whole notion of a racist society or a divided society along race would, not be, um, would be something that could be removed through these sexual relationships. So yeah, they're, they're all over the place. Um, but again, the politicalization of these relationships is what I'm particularly interested in and how black people are engaged in discussing what they mean and how they become uh, a, a larger sort of uh, how they provide larger insight to uh, racial justice and what that mm. means through sexuality.
0: Right. And, and that was a fascinating chapter uh, that, I, that I do hope people, uh, yeah, pick up on and engage with. Um, the next thing uh, I want to talk about is um, uh, within the Black sexual public sphere, um, you examine the textual and visual representations of gay and non-binary expression um, by looking at um, reporting on sexology but also by locating the voices of female impersonators and gay men themselves. Can you tell us about how the Black press reported on these topics? And second, explain why reporting on homosexuality and gender nonconforming expressions ultimately declined towards the 1940s.
1: Yeah, and and, and thanks again for asking this question. It, it, it allows me to go back in some sense to... Our earlier part of the discussion, when you asked how I discovered sexuality in the black press, and this was one of the ways it was through George Chauncey's book Gay New York, a couple other early uh books on um representations or uh, gay life in um in cities, particularly New York, and uh he wrote a chapter about uh gay black men in Harlem mm-hmm. and. I was just like, wow, what this stuff was being discussed <laughs> in the 1920s and 30s. And so, one of the first uh, introductions to sexuality in the Black press came through the drag balls and non binary expression, um, came through the representations of uh, gay men. And and to go back to the predatory lesbian, you see a, a much, much more flexible, I do like to mm-hmm. use the word tolerant, but uh inclusive, and I say that word with you know air quotes, uh inclusive representations of non-binary men, not women, um and gay men and female impersonators that you don't see in the same ways for women, and you certainly don't see today in the twenty-first century, right? Which is always I think when I'm teaching the history of sexuality students, we we live and continue to live in this very linear way that we think about time and things. We mm-hmm. live in a way that we think that things always <laughs> get better over time and there's always more mm-hmm. freedom and more progress. And I will tell you that when we think about Black media's coverage, right, of gender and sexuality, it almost looks positively retrograde to the way that it looked in the 1920s and 30s. And that's saying a lot, but it does. Right. And mm-hmm. um, um, these... I mean, it is is my favorite chapter in the book because, um, and I've written about, you know, Black female impersonators, particularly Alden Garrison, um, who was a Black female impersonator in Baltimore, Washington, D.C. And Mm -hmm. there's so much stuff that I didn't include in that chapter. But what you see is the Black press coverage of these drag balls because they are huge events. And I'm not the first one to write about them. You know, they've been written about um, in other uh, people's scholarship, uh, Chad Heap's written about them. Again, George Chauncey's written about them. Um, you know, I could go on and, and talk about other people that have written about them. But what, what I will say is that what I bring to this is I try to put more human, um, sort of a humanity um, for this community um, and really think about what readers might've been imagining or why readers would have been interested in these communities and these men um, because there's so much written about them. And what, I, what I've come to really believe is that this community of men wasn't this sort of separate community that becomes, um, you know, that are a source of objectification and fascination. That's, that's true. But they are very much part of Black communities. And they mm-hmm. live in Black communities. And this is not to say that they are not, um, they're not harassed they're not marginalized, they're not even demonized, but they live in these Black communities uh, as outsiders within, and they mm-hmm. live in Black communities and negotiate in many ways how they're covered in the Black press and sometimes they are actively engaged in uh, constructing their, their presentation and their representation um, in ways that tells you that... Um, there was a different way of understanding non-binary identity and mm-hmm. uh, homosexuality. And when I say different, I don't, you know, I'm not going to say that it was good, but I will say that it it had a place in the black community that allowed for this to be in major newspapers, again, that were about racial uplift and to sit mm-hmm. in relationship to uh, uh, coverage of of a um, of a uh, of, of black society coverage of uh, you know the NAACP coverage yes. of uh, you know racial uplift you know it it sat there and it sat there in these unproblematic ways for the most part now there are people writing into the black paper black press and saying why are we seeing this right why why is this in the paper. You know, this mm-hmm. is immoral. This is perverse. You know, these people don't belong in our communities. There's certainly people like that. But there are people who are responding in um, responding in the other way and saying that these people are, are part of our community. We, you know, we want to see them. We're going to these, these balls. And so I would say that today's media, both legacy Black press and even, um, you know, Black media platforms that live online, Have a different relationship to non-binary communities, uh, homosexuality, trans communities. Right? They, they, there's often again a a silencing or sort of a compartmentalization where they are uh, set in a in a different way. Um, And so, I think when I when I when I think about this particular period, and when I think about sexuality, particularly homosexuality, and uh, you know, people who don't conform to these uh, particular gender uh, categories of male and female. I see a a, a coverage that allowed for uh, these communities to be viewed as as part of the black community for better or worse, and was you know um, at least up until the nineteen forties um, mm-hmm. resistant to actually taking them out and censoring them from from uh, From
0: Right. Um, And I'm I'm kind of uh, I don't know if I'm hung up on your word, but like retrograde was um, a way that you kind of described uh, a a way to think about today's public black sexual public spheres compared to those of the interwar period. And we know that um, today's black sexual public spheres matter to as much today as they did during the interwar period. Yeah. So um, I would love your take on how, uh, just on, on the past-present comparison and how leaders and users of the Black media landscape today um, can learn from the ways that early 20th century Black newspapers fostered a culture of learning, uh, exploration, and debate within the, pla- the Black press uh, domain. Um, and how do you think that social media complicates, erodes, or advances Black sexual public spheres right now?
1: So I'm of the, I don't know how big um, this, how, how widespread this opinion is. So I, I see people who say that this doesn't matter. And I, I say it absolutely doesn't matter. Ownership matters. Mm-hmm. Ownership mm-hmm. and autonomy matters. And there's legacy papers that still have autonomy and ownership of their own media and their own, um, their own sort of uh, the ways that they cover stories, but a lot of black media doesn't um, mm-hmm. and and can't afford to. And for a lot of reasons why, I mean, one thing I didn't mention about the, the legacy black press is that they were forced to really be expansive in their coverage because they never really could command this type of advertising that their white counterparts could and that's a good thing and a bad thing because it allowed them to be really independent and kind of do what they wanted to do and not to worry about advertisers or people who had invested a lot in the papers. But it made them hustle their butts off for, uh, for sales, right? For subscriptions and daily paper sales. And the black press to its detriment or to its, um, you know, to its disadvantage was one of those, um, Things where, you know, one paper, one person bought a paper and then passed it around to eight or nine people. So you had a lot of Mm -hmm. circulation, but it was only sold one time. You need need the soul (laughs) to stay in and stay in business. Today's black media is limping along. I, I think, though, quite frankly, this pandemic is it's creating opportunities for us to think about black media. So I would say the black legacy press is limping along. Although they, you know, were able to secure some grants from Facebook, you still see uh, papers that were a shadow of what they were. And what I would argue Mm -hmm. is if I were advising a black press today, uh, based on what I know about the history, I would say, Mm You know, start looking at the models of older generations of uh, black press editors who some of them were like, I don't want to I don't want to talk about sexual scandals. I don't want to talk about, um, you know, these drag balls. But they were giving the readers what they wanted. Right. Right. And giving the readers what they wanted may conflict you know, with your own personal morality values, but it creates a sort of engagement and engaged sort of audience. Now, Black Papers today, you know, you're hard pressed to find any sort of coverage about things that people um, tend to be really interested in. And I know some people may say, well, then, then you're, you know, you're giving over to sensationalism, you're giving over to sort of the lowest sort of Den- uh, denominator of of public interest, not necessarily. I think there's ways that you can engage communities where they are and what really matters to them without going down this sort of road of then, um, you know, you know, dumbing things down or watering things down. And so I think a, a new black media landscape has to do a couple of things. I think it has to actually. Uh, try to be as autonomous as possible, which I know is difficult. I think it has to engage Black communities where they are, what they're interested in, what are their concerns. I think it has to be able to innovate with digital technology. I think too many black papers, again, and this is easy for me to say because I'm not you know, running a black paper, are relying on social media to do the heavy lifting for them for circulation. Um, and uh, Facebook particularly is gonna be problematic when it comes to black people in general and then particularly black media outlets. And, I, and, and more importantly, Black people have to start reading Black media. They just have mm-hmm. to. We have to, mm-hmm. as scholars, start publishing in Black newspapers. You imagine if somebody like Tala, Tallahassee Coates decided that he was going to publish in a Black paper on a Black media platform. And mm-hmm. that... His white readers read his stuff there, right? It's the sort of same model as a black uh, athlete, right? Mm-hmm. HBCU. We hold a lot of cultural and intellectual power. We have some powerhouses out there that even if they spent a quarter of their time in black media, publishing through black media, it would make a world of difference. And so, you know, I'm always gonna mm-hmm. stand for black media. I'm always gonna stand for black ownership and autonomy because I think the path through to um, a, a, a vibrant um, black media, a landscape that can do both uplift and advocate and entertain Uh, requires Black readers and Black writers and publishers to uh, sort of come together as a community and be invested in each other.
0: I cannot agree more. Um, I think that there's there's definitely there's absolutely an appetite for discussion of Black sexuality within black communities. And I think of the ways that kind of like music videos and a Twitter debate about music videos has become the forum for discussing some of these topics um, in ways that, you know, we're not discussing them in the black press.
1: Right. Um, uh, I'll I'll give a shout out to my colleague, Esther Arma. She always says that, you know, when there's an absence of narrative, our absence of discussion, people will fill it in some way. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen, right? Just because it's not there doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. And that's why if I, you know, again, you know, I think black media has an opportunity to help shape the narrative and create a platform for it. But as you say, you know, the narrative then or the discussion gets sort of moved in other places that, uh, you know, may doesn't actually, um, create the sort of, um, value or integrity. And when I say integrity, I don't mean integrity is necessarily good or bad, but I mean, Mm -hmm. the integrity of what that, that conversation could actually be and the value it could hold for people.
0: Yeah. And as you said, ownership is important, even in that regard. Um, just the amount of people who are, you know, tweeting about a video, a music video, like WAP is driving revenue for for Twitter, yeah. not for, you know, exactly. black presses. So. Exactly. And mm-hmm. I
1: think, you know, for a long time, I was, um, I was, a uh, you know, I, I was a detractor of black Twitter. You know, I really, really was because I, you know, would always complain, you know, you have all these black people using Twitter and it's not even owned by black people. Twitter doesn't even want to hire black people. And that still remains true. You know, now mm-hmm. I'm, You know, I'm on Twitter too much, but um, (laughs) I still maintain that black people's over reliance on white uh, media and white corporate sort of structures of social media, media platforms is to our detriment. It really is. Mm. And And I'm not saying that you can't have black oriented media that you know, isn't owned by black people. I'm not saying that, but I would, I I don't know how anybody could say that not being able to own your own means of production and own means of delivering isn't important. Um, But the fact of the matter is the institutional wealth of black people isn't there. But again, I would just go back to, you know, I do think that, you know, we as consumers and producers of knowledge have a lot to say about where and um, where and how, you know, that, those, that stuff is delivered.
0: For sure, for sure. Well, Dr. Gallen, I have one more question before we go. Would you like to share what you are working on now?
1: I would love to. Um, this pandemic has been the most trying time of my life, the most invigorating, the most painful, you know, mm-hmm. and I know that is shared by so many people, um, you know, Black, white, Asian American, Latinx, you know, indigenous, right? It's just been a trip, difficult time for everyone. But it has mm-hmm. opened up a world into thinking about health disparities and race in a way that I, I couldn't have imagined this time, you know, sitting in December of 2019. Um, and so I will say that, you know, my work is always thinking about how to, you know, engage a particular moment, whether it's speaking to issues around sexuality. And that's why you always hear me sort of bridging the past and the present. Uh, And so one of the things when the pandemic hit, I wanted to think about how, as you know, a a person in black studies, how the work that I do could actually be engaged beyond beyond scholarship, right? Beyond Mm -hmm. writing, right? Which is incredibly important but also right. about doing. And so, you know, because I, I do digital humanities and I'm engaged in technology, um, I am working on a project and uh, an organization, quite frankly, that's called COVID Black that is using digital technologies and specifically data to think about how to um, represent and talk about Black people's lives that, again, exceed... the the pathologies and the Mm -hmm. sort of dehumanization of black life. And that spawned into now looking at the black press and thinking about the coverage of health and the coverage of Mm -hmm. wellness, the coverage of, um, you know, healthcare historically in the black press and thinking about the forums and the ways that that's constructed. And, um, that along with, uh, you know, a book on black digital humanities that looks at data um, and looks at digital technologies for thinking again about uh, medicine and health, you know, my work is sort of coming together. So um, I'll, I'll just end by saying that the most recent thing that I think people can expect from me is I'm, I'm taking some of the, the, the material from uh, the book Pleasure News and that's uh, gonna be turned into a short book on diction in the black press and how the Black press becomes a way to think about um, uh, the uh, canonization of literature uh, and how it doesn't really include literature that is really focused and engaged with working class readers. And so that Mm book called Fiction for the Harassed and Frustrated, and that's Mm -hmm. coming out uh, this time in spring of 2022, or spring of 2022, yeah. Um, well, these sound like uh,
0: three vitally important projects, and I cannot wait to see what more we can read from you or even click on, I guess, from, from the work that you're doing. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today and for speaking with us about Pleasure in the News, African-American Readership and Sexuality in the Black Press.
1: Thank you. And um, if you're interested in learning more about COVID Black, you can follow me on Twitter at COVID Black, that's uh, COVID B-L-K, or follow me at uh, Black Digital Hume. Um, And um, thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about my book. I've had a wonderful, wonderful time. So I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure.
0: And we will be sure to include those links in the blog post.
1: Thank you.